And a very good evening to you, and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Koch, and every Sunday at this time from 6 to 9, we talk to someone who is a person of note and listen to music of their choice. My guest tonight is Shirley Apthorpe, who's the founder and CEO of Unkulo, which is an NGO. Uh, well, you're going to tell us about it. Welcome, Shirley. Thank you, Richard. What is it? <laughs> what is it? Um, Umkolo is uh, it's an NPC and it's an organization that I founded back in 2010 in order to promote social change through music in disadvantaged communities and just in South Africa. In South Africa. Yeah. So for me, as a, a, a Cape Town-born South African who's lived in many different places, um, this is about. Well, I turned 40 and I thought, gosh, you know, I'm going to die. Um, we're all going to die, but what do we leave behind? I didn't have children owing to circumstances, destiny, whatever. Uh, and I thought, what will, what, what do I have to leave and to whom do I have to leave it? And I thought, well, I don't have stuff. I don't own a house or a car, or, but I do have an incredible network in Europe, an opera network that I've built up over the course of my career. And I was seeing what amazing passion and talent there is in the singing world in South Africa. And I thought maybe I can make something which gives this network to the people in South Africa who are hungry for it. And so everything we've done since 2010 has been one way or another a step towards that desire to, to share the contacts, the beauty of the music world in Europe with... Um, future opera singers of South Africa. But of course, you know, I've learned, I think, a lot more than I've taught, and the whole thing has become more than that. And when you say the things you've done, just give us an idea of what you've done. Mm. We launched in 2010 uh, in Cape Town with a concert performance of Benjamin Britten, Noah's Flood. In 2011, we staged Purcell's King Arthur with 220 people. Gerben Groeten nobly stepped in and conducted that for us, and it was a romp. Um, but we put all of that together in 11 days. It was insane. So the next year we thought, let's focus a little. And we did, um, we, we thought we'll stick with Purcell for now because it's English and uh, it's free form. You can do a lot with it. Um, we chose the Fairy Queen, um, and we performed that with a choir from Cryfontaine between Cape Town and Stellenbosch and professional soloists and orchestra. Um, in both Johannesburg and Cape Town, and we revived that in 2013 in Joseph Stone Theatre in Cape Town. 2014 and 15, we made Comfort Ye, which was a mixture of the music of Handel and new music, which we created around the stories of the young protagonists. So we worked again with a choir we'd worked with from Cryfontaine. They told their life stories, and with that we made a libretto which told the story of where you might find comfort in times of despair. Well, uh, we're going to hear much more about all of these, but your first choice, and I have to say that when you said car and network, I picked up something else there, but we'll talk about that in a moment. <laughs> and this is a piece by Ross Edwards, Maninas, for a concerto for violin and orchestra. That was part of the Concerto for Violin and Orchestra by Ross Edwards, called Maninas. Dean Olding was the violinist, and the Sydney Symphony Orchestra was conducted by Stuart Challender. 
And so there must be some connection then, because you've got a sort of Australian twang somewhere in your voice. Yeah, I'm sorry about that, Richard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> can happen. Um, I um, my although I come from a very big South African family, uh, and I identify very much as as a Cape Town born. South African. My family moved to Australia, my direct family, when I was very young. And I grew up in many different Australian cities because my father is a an academic who specialised in a very obscure area of Homeric literature. Um, and as a specialist in ancient Greek manuscripts, the job market is, let's say, somewhat limited. So we moved around a lot in Australia and I can you can take the girl out of Australia, you can't take Australia out of the girl, everyone hears it. Um, uh, and I'm very grateful for, for the childhood I enjoyed in Australia and for my years of study in Tasmania at the Tasmanian Conservatorium of Music which is very southern most uh, and has many things in common with Cape Town. Hobart also has a mountain and a harbour and a, a little orchestra, um, a small opera house, which is hardly ever used. In fact, there's probably more music in, in Cape Town in that sense. Um, but I, I really grew up with this sense of conflict between the music that I loved, uh, which mostly came from Europe, and this landscape which I lived in, which was full of eucalypts and open spaces and, and desert and an ancient, ancient culture of people who were there first and uh, this tension uh, between what does this music have to do here do, do I have a right even to 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 be playing Mahler in Melbourne or Beethoven in Sydney or, or Tomasini in Tasmania exactly <laughs> um, I played a lot of Bieber but not Justin <laughs> and Australian composers have, have also struggled with that question and that, that's why I chose Ross Edwards Maninius because I feel he he's found a very authentic Australian voice in that piece, uh, a music full of joy, full of light, but that also represents those those open spaces and those big skies and, and this old, old culture. Um, he, in that way, reflects the music of Peter Sculthorpe, who in many senses is the father of Australian composition. And this whole question of, do we have our own voice? Um, that's one which I, I find a lot of common ground with the landscape in South Africa, this mixture of, of ancient cultures that were here first, the, all the dilemmas of colonialism and the fact that we speak a musical language which belongs to everybody. Well, it's time for your next piece now, and you've chosen Benjamin Britten. You mentioned Noah's Flood, and we're going to talk about that after this. This is Lord Jesus, Think on Me, from Noah's Flood by Benjamin Britten. That was part of Noah's Flood by Benjamin Britten, or Noah's Fluda, as it looks in print. Lord Jesus, Think on Me. And I guess you chose that because it was written very much with community music making in mind. Uh, it has parts for a recorder ensemble, for a bugle band, for teacups hanging on a string. Uh, it's, it's an amazing piece. I was invited to speak to a Rotary Club in Central Johannesburg just recently and um, they introduced me. They said, this is Shirley Apthorpe. She's an opera singer. And I thought, mm. No, I'm not. <laughs> I studied the violin. But then I remembered that I had, in fact, 
had a performance in an opera when I was about 12 years old. I was Mrs. Camel in a performance of Britain's Neues Flude in Brisbane, Australia. Um, and I loved that, I must say. It's, it was a, a really joyous experience for me as a child to be part of this fantastic piece. I don't know if you saw um, Grand Budapest Hotel or any other Wes Anderson films. He did this beautiful film called Moonrise Kingdom not so long ago. Listeners, if you haven't seen it, go get it on DVD, stream it online. It's the most charming, beautiful film and Britain's Noise Flutter runs as a as a musical through line in the film. Um, and you feel how the filmmaker loves the sense of playfulness in the music and the grandiosity and the, as, as Richard so well said, the community involvement. And that's why it was the first piece that I performed in South Africa when I found it on Kulo, uh, because it's just, it's so Doable, you know. He wrote it with great love for community organisations. And individually, the parts are quite straightforward, but put into canons and all the things, all the devices that he uses, it sounds quite hectic. I must say, it's a fantastic piece, and and um, you know, I think it also represents the spirit of Umtolo and what I'm doing in that. For me, at, at that age, I just got so much joy in being a part of that, and that's what I want to share. You know, I want every child in this country to have access to that kind of joy. Yeah, and it's a sort of piece, actually, that, that almost anyone can join in. I, I did it once in, uh, when I was living in Chichester, and we had some kids in the school who really were not great singers, but they really wanted to take part. And so they said, no, so we'll... we'll take part anyway, even if we can't sing. And they were, you know, they were camels or horses or whatever it was. They could choose whichever animal they wanted to be. And it was fantastic. We had fun making masks and all of that stuff. It, it's a whole process and just a fantastic thing for involving many parts of a community. Yes, it's it's huge fun. It's got a lot of humor in it. But as you said, it's also got that vast orchestral landscape and all the complexity of Britain at its greatest. And a powerful story. And a wonderful story. Yeah, a wonderful story. That was Noah's Flood, one of the projects that my guest Shirley Apthorpe has been involved in here in South Africa. I'm interested to know, and perhaps we should listen to your next piece first, and then I want to know why you chose South Africa. I mean, you could have chosen Australia to go and do something like this, working with communities there, but you chose South Africa, I suppose, because of your connections, but we're going to talk about that. And also, this Homeric history that you have. This is Artaxerxes, Vo Sulkando, and it's sung by a countertenor, Philip Jaruski, and the director is Franco Fagiolo. That was the countertenor, Philip Jaruski, singing Vo Sulkando from Artaxerxes. Uh, actually, I, I opened up too many cans there because <laughs> we, we were talking about Homer and all sorts of things. So uh, tell me about your own background. You said you were a violinist, but there must be much more to it than that if you had a father who was interested in ancient Greek. If I look at my musical origins, I do see a lot of my South African background in there. And uh, we were joking about my family history. Um, my grandfather was Martin Fersfeld, the philosopher who wrote Food for Thought and Clip and Clay and many other wonderful books. And he married Barbara Barry, my Omar, uh, who was from the family who were the Barrys of Barrydale. Um, and I recently visited the museum to my Omar's parents in Pilgrim's Rest near the uh, Kruger Park. 
Um, I didn't even know the place existed. It was a complete surprise for me to to stumble on this. Um, and they, I mean, it, it's a bit scary seeing your great grandparents preserved on the wall like that, and all the aunts of whom I know the stories: the uncles who died in the war, the uncle who died climbing, the aunt who died at the age of twelve of meningitis, and her bedroom preserved exactly as it was then. It's wow! Um, but they had a music room. They had a, a piano and and a violin and sheet music, and it's in, you know the older you get, the more you see that you don't have as much choice as you thought about who you become because. Because those who've gone before you have set paths which you inevitably follow, um, and and just as we found recently, Bach has had a long history in Soweto. Mokali Kwapeng has taught me a lot about that. So I see that my my family always had music as a part of it. Um, I wanted to play the organ when I was little because it was huge and it made a big noise. Um, and then my family said, if you want to play an instrument, play the piano, we've got one of those. But I was very determined that I wanted to play. The, uh, if I couldn't play the, the organ, it was going to be the violin. And all I wanted for years was to grow up to be a professional violinist in a symphony orchestra. And I knew I wanted to be in the second violins because I wanted to be in the middle of the music and I wanted to be surrounded by people who were better than me. I just found that the most exciting thing. Um, and I'm so grateful in retrospect for my failure to become a professional violinist because by becoming instead a music journalist, I've had the privilege of access to a far, far greater variety of fabulous music than I would have been able to here had I remained in Queensland as a second violinist in the symphony orchestra. So something must have taken you to Europe at some stage. What was that? You cannot play European music on the other side of the planet without yearning to experience Europe. I think that's really normal. You play Mahler, you want to see Austria. You play Bruckner, you want to see the, the, the Alps. You, you play... Bach, you want to go to Leipzig, it's in there. And when I was um, a second violinist in the Queensland Youth Orchestra, we had a, a violist who was an absolute animal. He was monstrously good, Brett Dean. Um, and he headed off to Berlin when he was only 18 years old. And within two years, he was a full member of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. And for my whole generation, you have to remember, this is long before the internet and email and smartphones and YouTube. For my generation, suddenly Berlin became not only real but accessible because one of us was there. And ever since that happened, I must have been 13 or 14 at the time, I knew I want to go to Berlin, I want to hear the Berlin Philharmonic live. And as my love for opera grew, I also, of course, I wanted to go to the Staatsoper, I wanted to go to the Unterden Linden, I wanted to go to the Bayerische Staatsoper in Munich. Um, you have those dreams, you can't help having those dreams when you play this music and um, so I just went for it. I applied for every scholarship that was out there um, and I, I, I was very, very fortunate to get a whole bunch of them and I thought, okay, I'll go for a year. I'll, I'll do this self-devised program of study in music criticism Then I'll hang in there a bit, maybe do some casual work in London and uh, after that I'll come back to Tasmania and keep writing for the newspaper here but first I'll do this. And I kind of got this, got stuck there. <laughs> Doing what? When I went to Europe, I went as a young music journalist, but I thought, well, of course, I can't aspire to work as a music journalist in Europe. That's where all the grown-ups are. 
Um, and when I was freelancing in London, I was doing secretarial temp temp work. I was doing cleaning work, um, kind of anything. And um, I applied for a couple of jobs that came up. One of them was with BBC Music Magazine in the editorial department. And the interview went quite well, but they said, why are you, you, you're not someone who should be in the editorial department. You're clearly a music journalist. Why don't you do that? And I thought, really? Should I dare that? Um, and I did dare, and it just happened. I think the best move was I lived in London for a year, and then my then my first German boyfriend borrowed his sister's VW Golf and drove to London and fetched me, brought me home to Berlin. He had an old Dutch bicycle waiting for me. And I immediately discovered that writing in English about classical music in German-speaking Europe was a market segment that was open for me. And so you started writing for the Financial Times or other magazines or newspapers? Yes, I started freelancing also for Australian publications and uh, had the immense good fortune to, to become the Financial Times German correspondent. Well, here's some of the music you probably heard. This is Musica Antiqua of Köln under Reinhard Goebel, part of Brandenburg Concerto No. 3 by Bach. Wow. That's quite a speed. That was a huge discovery for me during my student years. I grew up with the Herbert von Karajan recordings of the Brandenburg Concerti, and I loved them. Um, but that movement is in 12-8, which is 12 quavers per bar, and Karajan conducts it slowly in four. And I thought, that's how it goes. And then my, my I had an amazing history lecturer, and he played, he would walk in with an armload of CDs, and he would say to us, have a listen to this. It's going to blow your minds. <laughs> and that, that was how I found the whole world of historically informed performance practice, and I realized it's it can be day and night. It, it, so much of what I then heard was was such a revelation. And And you heard it live, of course, when you were in Germany. Or not? Not the not 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 not, not, not not that particular piece. I've heard um, Musica Antiqua. I've heard the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra live in the same city as the uh, um, Akademie für Alte Musik Berlin. So of course I, I have really I get to hear a lot of excellent. So um, are you sort of big on early music? I love it. It's one of my passions. Um, I have a friend in Berlin called Lawrence Dreyfus, and he is the leader of a viol consort who play very beautiful music. He's also written a book on Wagner called Wagner and the Erotic Impulse, and he was an Oxford professor for many years. And, and uh, you know, a few people I, I know bridge both of those worlds. So, you know, loving rock music and period instrument performance doesn't leave behind romanticism and the, the big, big works. Um, also, 20th century music, so much of that I have such a passion for, and I really am constantly intrigued by 21st century music. So one of the good things about being a journalist is that you get to go to a lot of different performances, I guess. That's the joy of it. It's. Uh, I recently heard a new term to me. I mean, it's, it shows me to be the dinosaur that I am, that it was new to me, FOMO, fear of missing out. And I thought, that's it. That's it. That's why I'm always booking budget flights or getting onto trains or riding my bicycle somewhere because I want to be there. I want to hear it. But that hunger has never left me. So do you travel around going to lots of different performances. I assume there's quite a lot going on in Berlin. Is that where you're based now? Yes, Berlin is home and uh, has been home for the last 20 years. I'm passionately 
happy in Berlin. I really am a Berliner. I love Berlin. Um, but I can't quite imagine staying in one place. And, and I have the, the good fortune of being um, one of only about three correspondents for my paper about music in Europe. So it's kind of like having being this sweet shop. And I can sit there and I can say, oh, they're doing this in Zurich or they're doing that in Munich. Or, oh, Amsterdam's got a really nice premiere. When I go back, I'll see Boris Godunov in Paris and then um, Bartok's Bluebeard in Brussels and um, Aix-en-Provence is coming up. Uh, it's, it's really a joy. And do you write then a regular column or something like once a week or every day or how often do you have to write as a correspondent and and a, a music critic that's a sort of how long is a piece of string question um i have an agreement with the financial times that i write approximately four reviews a month for them when i'm there and i'm very very fortunate that they have a, a lot of tolerance for my long stints in south africa um it's it's i'm a freelancer so the work is is as as much as I am able to take on, or as little as as uh, I'm able to do. And you get paid for what you do. You're not you're not paid a monthly salary. Or Alas, we freelancers, we don't get holiday pay, we don't get sick pay. Um, you just it's really a, a per word situation. So that has been fantastic. Was every writer knows the issue is procrastination. If I didn't get paid for what I wrote, I don't think I would really write anything. <laughs> but hunger and terror of not being able to pay the rent continues to drive me forward. And do you write for other organizations as well or just for the Financial Times? Uh, No, I'm completely freelance, so I will do program notes and CD liners and articles for other newspapers, for specialist music publications, some work for websites, anyone who pays me. My guest in People of Note is Shirley Apthorpe who writes for the Financial Times in London, but she's also the founder and CEO of Umtrulo, a Berlin-based, well, not Berlin-based, a sort of worldwide-based organization, a non-profit organization, which brings music to disadvantaged communities. Basically, that's what it is. Yes, technically, we we are incorporated in both Germany and South Africa as a non-profit company. And our funding actually mostly comes from Liechtenstein. We are very fortunate for what we get from there. But all of our output so far has been in South Africa, although we very much hope uh, and we have good prospects of taking some of our work to Europe in the near future. Liechtenstein, explain this. I know, it's like, where's Liechtenstein? You have to Google it in this tiny little spot on the map. It's almost Switzerland. It's a little island uh, of a country on the border, on the Swiss border, which has um, a lot of mountains and some very big companies. It's, it's sort of a tax haven country. It's probably not fair to them to say that, but it's a com- country with, with low tax. And somebody loves South Africa. Well, we're very fortunate um, about the Hilti Foundation. Uh, you, know, you might know Hilti from the nail gun or the heavy earth-moving equipment. Um, and funding is what we do. We won't get sponsorship because we work with people who don't have money. You know, no, no cell phone company is going to see big bucks in associating themselves with us. And we're not interested in uh, a rich audience. So we are funded by people who believe in music as a means for social change. Now, your next choice is by Bieber, and you mentioned Bieber a little earlier, and this is a piece called Battaglia. Music by the wonderfully named Heinrich Ignaz Franz von Bieber. That was Battaglia for 10 players. 
Just tell us a bit about that. This piece is so off the wall that it's very hard to believe that it's Baroque music. It's it, it you will have heard it has this venture into complete atonalism. Really <laughs> like what the hell is going on? Bieber was a maniac who worked in in Salzburg and you can hear he just had this ridiculously colorful imagination and a wicked sense of humor. Um, when I was a student, I played his sonata representiva, where as a violin you imitate the sound of a dog and a chicken and a cat, and um, it's it's really crazy. I mean, the guy was insane, but it's really beautiful, fabulous, intriguing music as well. And I'm sure that somewhere in the world there's a Bieber festival. <laughs> well, they Tinta Barocca in uh, Cape Town, I believe it was them. Uh, they did a little event which they called just Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice t title. Actually, and I want to talk uh, in a moment about early music in South Africa because it's growing. It really is, and I'm very happy to see that. Have you had a part in that? I would not claim that um, at all. Um, I'm, I'm very interested to bring more Baroque music and more historically informed performance practice to the country because... Well, one of the starting ideas was looking at all these children's choirs uh, where small girls imitate the sound of big voices because they think that that is how it goes. You hear a lot of 15-year-olds trying to sound like Maria Callas and Luciano Pavarotti. And Baroque music requires a much smaller vocal ideal. Smaller is perhaps not a fair word, but it's uh, it's a different style of vocal production. It's much less forced. And so, in fact, I came to Baroque in the South African context because I want to promote a healthier vocal ideal for young singers also because I love it and it's very it rocks you know uh, as we heard in the Lata Salsa it's you know some of it just is stuff where you want to stand on your chair and scream um, really good tunes strong rhythms and I, I think that has a universal appeal and of course in England we had Henry Purcell who was a great Baroque composer, early Baroque composer, and here's something by him. It's the, the two daughters from King Arthur. Music by Henry Purcell, two daughters from King Arthur, the choice of Shirley Apthorpe, who's my guest in People of Note, and it's just about seven o'clock. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this. And a warm welcome to the second hour of People of Note. My guest, Shirley Apthorpe, is the founder and CEO of Umtulo, and she's uh, the Berlin-based music critic for the Financial Times. But she comes to South Africa fairly regularly? Yes, I would say I spend between a quarter and a third of each year here. That's quite a lot of time. Yes, it is. Yeah. And most recently, you've been involved in a project in Soweto, at the Seventh-day Adventist Church doing the St. John Passion by Bach. This, I must say, has been the brainchild of Kobi van Rensburg, who you will also have heard on this program. Um, but I did, I sang both the Bach Passions as a child in the Queensland Bach Society Choir. It exists. Um, I was the mascot of the choir. I was about 50 years younger than everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my goodness, I still remember the taste of the biscuits at the tea breaks. But it was so fabulous for me when I was a kid to discover these pieces. These, and we sang the St. John Passion in English, and I still know every note of the choir parts from it in English. Slowly. <laughs> well, a lot slower than we ended up doing it here, because Kubi had 
a very strong vision of bringing the St. John's Passion to South Africa as a community involvement project because that's how Bach wrote it. He wrote for Lutheran chorales where his congregation knew this music and sang with this music and it was a participatory experience and Kubi had a vision for how this could become not only a participatory experience in South Africa but also a unifying experience that brought together very diverse communities and because this music is not to exaggerate but this music is etched on my soul um, and I thought the whole venture as he proposed it was pretty much unrealizable especially on the budget that we had and I tried to pull the plug on it several times a fabulous idea but we, we, we can't do it we're much too small you're crazy it's huge and I was in the end he was just so passionate and so convinced uh, that against my better judgment I said yes um, and I must say it nearly killed us it was maybe the hardest thing I've ever done and it was so worth it it was really exactly as Corby imagined and I like who knows what Bach imagined but I like to think the old man would have been proud uh, we really brought communities together in Meadowlands and it was for all of us an amazing experience well we're going to hear something from the St. John Passion now this is the aria Zerfließer mein Herzer the English Baroque soloists and the Monteverdi choir under John Elliot Gardner Fantastic aria that Zerfließer mein Herzer from the St. John Passion by Johann Sebastian Bach, the English Baroque soloist and the Monteverdi choir. Well, they, uh, the Monteverdi choir were not singing in that, but some soloist was, and Sir John Elliot Gardner conducting. Interestingly enough, he's been here a couple of times to work with the Soweto Buscade String Ensemble, and they did some interesting combination concerts. Also, I remember his being blown away. Uh, by one of the choirs here that he had singing with him. He'd never heard such a sound, I think. As you know, uh, choirs here sing with a very different type of tone and style to most English choirs singing this type of music. Absolutely. Um, but in the case of Bach, uh, of course, he was writing for a German choir rather than an English choir, which is a different sound again. And you see in different communities, I think it's also related to language and culture that the voice is placed differently within the body. Um, Swedish choirs sing with a more whole body voice than British choirs. And the Germans have something maybe somewhere in between. But of course, Bach was working with a situation which was different again because he was working with boys and men. Um, but he had boys whose voices probably broke quite a lot later than the voices of boys today, if that is debated. Um, and he was always complaining that he wanted more. Um, I think Bach belongs to every choir and each choir brings its own flavour to Bach. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's great when you can apply the, the knowledge that we've gained from the period instrument performance world of what we as much as we do know about the phrasing and the practice of Bach's day. And the people that you were working with here in Soweto a couple of weeks ago, uh, what has happened to their lives do you think by taking part in a production such as this? At the end of every production, I ask participants for feedback. I say, you know, please write a sentence, a paragraph about what this experience has meant for you. And generally speaking, one or two responses trickle in. Uh, I'm a writer. I fully understand about not quite getting around to things. And in this case, 
um, my all my channels, my WhatsApp, my email, Facebook, I've been flooded with responses from participants, um, overwhelmingly so. Uh, people were transfixed, were transformed. We had orchestra members coming up to us and saying it changed my life. We had audience members in tears. Um, we had many people who would never have come to that community otherwise who found it transformative, but also the the community w were thrilled with the with the focus it put on their church with the with the act of hosting and with the, with a phenomenon of being part of something so big and so beautiful. Henry Purcell is your next choice. This is the Hyman scene from the Fairy Queen. That was a scene from the Fairy Queen, the Hyman scene, music by Henry Purcell. Was that a recording of one of your projects? <laughs> no, Richard. I'd love to say yes. Uh, I'd love to think that we uh, reached a similar level of, of musical accomplishment. I was very satisfied with the, with the achievement of, of what we did with that Fairy Queen. Um, but that was certainly one of the moments in the piece which I every night found heart-stoppingly beautiful. It's a hymn to marriage. Uh, and we spoke in our production about gender and identity, relationships, community, um, and the young people who are part of that uh, still speak with one another and every every few months or every couple of years I hear from one of them posting things on Facebook saying, if love's a sweet passion, why does it torment? Uh, and I love that this, this Purcell um, drama still speaks to young people in Cryfontein, in Cape Town, in, in Kyalicha today. How do you choose the venues where where you do things? Every search for a venue uh, is about access. It's about who can get there, and it's about acoustic. It's, that's incredibly important. The music has to sound decent in there. Um, and it's about ownership and community. So we look for venues which people can get to and as I mentioned earlier we're very interested in those who cannot afford to buy tickets for themselves that's why we have sponsorship it's why people give us sponsorship um, our financial model is not premised on ticket sales which is a great luxury um, we want to reach people who love and sing this music but normally don't have the opportunity to attend um, we have also performed at the Market Theatre, but I will say that uh, venues which are central are often very much more accessible than venues in the suburbs. Um, yeah, we, we look for unusual places or usual places, but basically places which people can reach and where the sound is good. And you've done five years of projects or six years of projects, and you've you said Cryfontaine, nine years of projects. You've done Cryfontaine. You mentioned Kailicha, Soweto. Just give us an idea of which other ones. Um, we've performed in Hout Bay and in Langa and in Potchefstroom. We've done a couple of things in Potchefstroom. We did a fabulous marriage of Figaro there. And I can say uh, I've learned to really appreciate the amazing work of the vocal department at the University of Potchefstroom and the tremendous talent that comes out there, but don't try being a vegetarian in Potchefstroom. <laughs> we've performed at the Market Theatre and in Sasselberg. Um, we've held workshops really all around the country. Um, we'd love to do something in Durban. Um, 
it's 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 so there's so many places where one could do so much. I wish I had 20 lives and 500 budgets. But I also really hope that the young people who take part in our projects today are going to overtake me soon in the fast lane, making their own companies and their own productions. That would be wonderful. As Steals the Morn by George Frederick Handel is your next choice. What a beautiful piece. Isn't it magnificent? I really think that's one of the most sublime duets of all time, and I'd never even heard of it until we said about Making Comfort Ye, which was a compilation of Handel pieces and, and new music, and Handel just does it for me again and again and again. That man had such a sense of drama and of progress, but also of sheer beauty. And he was a tremendous pragmatist. He was a good, good networker, great businessman, <laughs> really quite a remarkable character. Yeah. And, and funny enough, his music uh, was, his and Bach's music was quite widespread here uh, because it was easily transcribable into tonic solfa. This is a very interesting subject. I, I tell people in Europe about this, and they can't really believe me. You know, I sometimes get asked, you know, isn't it colonial taking our music over to them? They have their own music. And I'm saying again and again, don't kid yourself. Their music is Handel. It's, um, you know, it's Verdi. It's Puccini and Rossini and Mozart. Um, this music doesn't only belong to Europe and it's been here for a long long time as you know better than anyone. Yeah in fact I have quite a big collection of tonic solfar scores from the days when everybody sang from tonic solfar and uh, it's it's quite a collection which will go to a library somewhere one Fabulous. day. Yeah. Um, now one of the things that you did this time round was to use uh, a chorale from the St. Matthew Passion, I think, in the St. John Passion. It's not as much of a cheat as that would suggest because we sat down to do this insanely over-ambitious project in Soweto and we thought, my God, this first chorus is huge. The usual first chorus, Herr on Herrscher, it's enormous. And we thought we're going to smash into a wall as soon as we started. Bach was a smart cookie and he had exactly the same problem. And so he wrote this as an alternative version, Bach performed in his lifetime, he did the St. John's Passion four times. Um, and each time he made pragmatic alterations depending on his circumstances. As composers did. Handel did lots of changes for his Messiah also, depending on who was available. So yeah. it was quite common. Exactly. And and one of the one of his pragmatic solutions was that he must have had a similar situation to us of thinking, my, my word, maybe that's just a bit too much for my forces today um, and so he did also open his own St. John's Passion with this chorale this orchestrated chorale which he also used in the St. Matthew Passion Just such a beautiful piece Oh Mensch Bewein from the St. Matthew Passion or if you were in Soweto a few weeks ago from the St. John Passion Or if you were in Leipzig in Bach's time at least once from the St. John's Passion Actually it's funny to think of Bach only doing the St. John Passion four times because I was talking to uh, Sia Bonga Makunga a couple of weeks ago and uh, he, one of his friends had been booked to do 14 performances and here he's done three, Sia Bonga's done three just, you know, a couple of weeks ago and he's certainly done it several times for me so he's already performed it more times than Bach, <laughs> which is an amazing thought. 
on the other hand, I think Siobhan was born to sing the music of Bach, and we were really fortunate to have him come back to sing yeah. with us. What an extraordinary voice. What a wonderful talent. His evangelist was so moving that I had tears in my eyes on several occasions, and when he sings the arias, it sounds like they sit, they're so high, but with him it sounds like they sit in the middle of his yeah. voice. Now he's got a very particular type of voice, and he's really doing well. It's fantastic that young South African singers are doing well in many places in Europe now. What I love about the way Siobhanga is pursuing his career is that he's doing it in what I would call the old-fashioned German way. He's starting in the small provincial houses and really getting a very solid groundwork. And for that reason, and the, coupled with the fact that his voice is exceptional, he has a very distinctive voice that you can immediately tell is his, and so few of the big stars today have that. I think he has what it's, he, it takes, and I really think he's in there for the long haul. And I love that he's starting slowly and that he's starting in the province because I think it's giving him a grounding um, that will serve him for a, the, the big, big future that I very strongly feel that he deserves. Yeah, we actually talked about that, how just, you know, a step at a time. Whereas some other singers of ours have sort of taken one huge step and ended up on the world stage. And that is risky. Uh, you know, I think those singers that you're thinking of have also enormous self-discipline and wisdom and patience. And I hope that they also are in it for the long haul. But what Siobhanga is doing is going to give him a, a deeper security. He's learned the language. He He's learning the, not only the words, but the musical culture. And I, I just feel that grounding is going to give him a, a depth that will be a f found like a deep well that he will be able to draw on. He's always going to surprise his listeners. He's always going to have that profundity and, and wisdom. And I, I'm just, I can't say how happy I am to, to watch the way he's doing and then to see the, the mining and where he's been working. It's a little out of the way. You have to change trains several times to get there. And so my colleagues from the big radio stations and newspapers, they, they don't get there all the time. But when they do, I, I always hear this, this feedback of, my goodness, there's his tenor, and he has the most extraordinary voice, and that gives me great pleasure. My guest in People of Note is Shirley Apthorpe, who is the Berlin-based music critic for the Financial Times and also the founder and CEO of Umtulo. Slightly longer piece now by Schubert. This is the first movement of his piano sonata in B-flat. That was the first movement of the piano sonata in B-flat major by Franz Schubert, played by Alfred Brendel. Shirley, one of the great things that you are lucky enough to do is to see some of the greatest artists, I'm sure, working today as part of your job. And it, what a pleasure that must be. It, it's, you know, you get spoiled. Um, and, and, and one of the consequences is that I don't really listen to music on CD or online um, because I don't need to because I can hear it live. Um, and I find that a live performance, uh, you know, I'm one of those people that always asks them to turn down the music in restaurants because the, the, the live experience lives on inside me and I need to, I need time for that to decompress and to hear it in my heart. Maybe that sounds kitschy, um, but, but you, the music goes in and you feel like you're being filled up like a library uh, and, and nothing replaces the live experience, nothing. Well, and we, I, I keep saying on these programs, you know, keep music live, because a lot of our listeners, of course, this is their main diet of music, is listening to 
Classic 1027. I think I just said a terrible thing on radio. <laughs> no, 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 no. You said an absolutely perfect thing because it exactly fits in with what I always say to them. You know, you can listen to as much radio as you like, but keep the music live. I'm going to say something very controversial here because I did study in Tasmania and I was a student in Tasmania with a passion for opera and there wasn't any. So even when I was, I was a schoolgirl in Brisbane and I, I rode my my scooter to my best friend's mother's house to watch the Bayreuth ring cycle on her television because it was being simulcast. Um, and I remember drinking pear juice and watching Goethe Demerong. And I'm terribly grateful that those mediums exist and give people access. And I, I you know, really, I lived that. It, it made a huge difference for me. Media made it possible for me as a child in Brisbane to hear the ring from Bayreuth and that was a formative experience so I'm not rubbishing it and yet I'm very dubious about things like the Met broadcasts in cinemas um, because it's a franchise it's a branding enterprise and I would really much rather go to hear a community performance of Donizetti or Mozart or Rossini any performance than sit in a cinema listening to it canned because um, in Germany they talk about der singende Mensch auf die Bühne, the, the, the singing person on the stage. The real, the real thing is the live thing. Um, don't confuse those big companies who have access to all of the propaganda media in the world with the vitality of, as you say, keep music live. It's Music is, is the live instant and the communication between the people. And one of the most beautiful forms of music is the song. And here's Lop de Tränen by Franz Schubert, Matthias Goerner with Graham Johnson. The song Lop de Tränen by Franz Schubert Matthias Goerner, the baritone, Graham Johnson playing the piano, and it was chosen by Shirley Apthorpe, who's my guest in People of Note. It's just about 8 o'clock. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back. And welcome back to the third hour of People of Note. I'm Richard Koch, and my guest is Shirley Apthorpe. And just before the break, we heard some music by Schubert, and one of your projects here involved... Schubert's music. Yes, last year with Kobe in uh, Cape Town and Hout Bay and Cryfontein and Nanga, we performed Shanda, which was a dramatized production with the leader of Schubert. And one of the ones you chose was Der Zwerch. One of the joys of Shanda was the obscurity of some of the repertoire. We did use a lot of the better known. We had El Koenig, we had Röslein, Röslein, we had a number of the, the greats, but we also, could we unearthed some Schubert leader which are never performed, and some of them are never performed, they're damned unperformable, um, and he came up with solutions for that, but that's uh, Zwerg is, is so dark and it's so dramatic and sh and Kubi staged it as a, a a gangster murder scene where the 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 gang boss is out on the on his speedboat with his girlfriend there's been a the, the the gang boss's assistant has had an affair with a with a girlfriend of the gang boss and then uh, the gang boss murders the girlfriend and it all so transported very well Schubert Schubert is everything. Schubert's music has all of life in it and this ability to turn on a ticky from from grief to joy and back again. And uh, he, he does these mini dramas where you hear just everything in them, everything. That was applause for Shirley Verrett, the mezzo-soprano, and Charles Wadsworth, the accompanist, performing Der Zwerch by 
Franz Schubert. You've mentioned several times Kobi von Rendsburg. How did you come into contact with him? Kobi remembers um, the one time I reviewed him when he was singing in Innsbruck, um, where I was reviewing René Jacobs' production of Haydn's Il Mondo della Luna, where Kobi sang one of the, the characters. I dismissed him with two adjectives at the time. I said suitably oily, and I think he's never forgiven me for that. I also did hear him sing uh, Orfeo in Stuttgart in a relatively horrible production where he absolutely stood out as, as a remarkable performer. But I didn't meet him until must have been 2010, 2011 or so. In fact, I was introduced by Hans Hussen, the South African cellist in Cape Town, to Kobe. Um, he's mutual friends with Stefan Temming, who I'm, I'm sure you know, the South African recorder player uh, based in Munich. Um, and, and by the time I met Kobe, um, he was no longer singing. He was already working as a teacher and as a stage director. Um, and he just wouldn't shut up. He talked and talked and talked, and he didn't seem to really care whether I was listening or not on on one level. And on the other level, I thought, my gosh, you know, he knows so much and he's got such a passion. I must say I had already heard about his work as a stage director from some of my most critical and judgmental friends who said that Orfeo that he did in Hala was one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, and I realized this is a man whose brain is just full of, of information and enthusiasm and um, I, I know few people with whom I, the time flies quite so fast. I can talk with Gobi. We've driven across South Africa over two, two days. We didn't stop talking the whole time. I never get bored. The guy is kind of a genius. Well, and that showed in the production you've just done in Soweto. But now here's something completely different. This is music by Janacek, the prelude to Act One of Genufa. The prelude to Act One of Genufa by Janacek. I chose Genufa because it's one of my favorite pieces on the whole world. I said that Schubert is everything. To me, Janacek is also everything. Everything. There's so much humanity in his pieces. Genufa makes me cry every time because of the protagonist. She, she forgives her stepmother who's done the most terrible thing anyone could ever do to a person to her. And there's this moment where she forgives her and I, I cry every time. This is just fantastic music about people that you can't help loving in all their dire circumstances. And then we have some Beethoven. This is the uh, Arietta from the Piano Sonata Number no. 32. Alfred Brendel is the pianist. Alfred Brendel performing there, the second movement of the Piano Sonata Number no. 32, the Arietta by Beethoven. I remember the first time I heard that recording, and uh, having said you have to hear music live, but that was a CD. Um, and I mentioned my first German boyfriend who drove to London, his VW Golf, and fetched me home. And he was the one that showed that to me. I, I really remember in his little apartment, um, he, he said, you won't believe what I've just heard. It's jazz. It's jazz. Um, and he, it was Alfred Brendel playing playing this bedroom. And I remember just boggling. I said, bloody hell, it's actually boogie-woogie. Um, and it, it's, it's such a surprise because you think Beethoven... It, um, and unfortunately, that lovely man, my first German boyfriend, died of a viral heart muscle infection just before he turned 31. Um, so, I, you know, I remember him with tremendous fondness, and he, he also had this delight in discovery, and we were always sort of finding stuff together and showing it to, to each other. And I just, this sort of absolute delighting. It's Beethoven, but it's jazz. <laughs> and, and Brendel really, really goes for it in that recording. It's, it's poised, but it's also impish, and I love that. Tell us some of the trends in music in Germany today. 
Where where is music going? The lovely thing about Germans is that they they think endlessly. Uh, one of my frustrations growing up in Australia was that people would say, "Oh, Shirley, lighten up, lighten up." Uh, nobody's ever asked me to lighten up in Germany. Um, um, so whatever is going on, you can be sure that it's being. There's a lovely German word, Auseinandersetzen, which is or an, an Auseinandersetzung, um, which is untranslatable. But I'll attempt to do so. It means uh, to to struggle with something while analysing it and coming to terms with it more or less. Um, so to say what are the trends, that's quite difficult to pin down. It's certainly the Germans are always trying to identify what the trends are. Um, the function of the radio orchestra is something that's endlessly debated um, because obviously that is shifting in recent times. And and funding is getting less? In or fact, there's is it just steady? Been, there's, I've just read an article about a large new cultural fund in Germany. Um, it's suffering on a level of luxury. So there are small orchestras being fused and merged and small houses being cut down. But we're talking about a country that has 64 fully funded opera houses that, um, you know, I live in a city that has eight symphony orchestras and it's taken for granted. It's a basic assumption that culture needs to be there. You don't have to justify it. And there was a, a famous study about the impact of music in an educational context called the Bastian study, which proved, which we're hearing endlessly now, this was before the days of social media, proved children who do music perform better at maths and science. And in fact, perform better perhaps in lots of things. There's no doubt, and we see it in many news, there's neurological studies which show what impact learning the piano has on a developing brain. Um, but what, what intrigued me about the way Germany responded to this Bastian study um, was that it was not universally applauded. They didn't say, hooray, now we've proved that we need music. There was a huge backlash which says, why the hell do we need to justify the fact that music makes you good at maths and science in order to say, therefore, music deserves to be? Doesn't music deserve to be because music? Do we have to contextualize um, an aesthetic experience um, by saying, oh, it has scientific value? Can not an aesthetic experience have value of its own? And I love that take on it. You know, I love the the ferocity with which the German cultural world defends the self-evident right to exist of that culture. And it still uh, plays a large part in German society. I mean, the fact, for example, that we were talking earlier about the small city of Meiningen, let's say, that has a very busy opera house. Look, Germany struggles too. You know, the opera houses are worried about an aging audience and falling attendance. Um, there are fewer music lessons in schools. Uh, th this worldwide global pragmatic, pragmatism is the wrong word, um, materialistic trend towards emphasizing only that which can be quantified as having a financial value um, is affecting Germany as well. And this is something South Africa really has far better than Germany. In South Africa, you have hundreds of thousands of school children singing the music of opera. Um, you have a huge amount of community passion for choral music. Um, you know, ever since the Second World War, the Germans have been a little bit afraid of singing together because during the Third Reich, they sang some stuff which was really not cool. Um, and their horror about what they'd been singing about resulted in a death of community choir singing. Um, and, and South Africa is really ahead of Germany in that regard. How nice is that? 
<laughs> well, here comes uh, Richard Wagner now with Im Treibhaus, one of the Wesendonk leader, the fabulous Jesse Norman singing. One of the Wesendonk leader by Richard Wagner, Im Treibhaus, Jesse Norman was the singer there with the London Symphony Orchestra under Sir Colin Davis. This is a particular favorite song of mine. Uh, the first reason is the text. Um, you know, she's saying we're, we're tropical plants. We're in a hot house. We're, we're growing in this weird other world. And the only thing I'm certain of is that this is not my home. Uh, and there's so many moments in my life when I've felt like that. Unsere Heimat ist nicht hier. I'm from somewhere else. And that state of being the person from somewhere else has, you know, I grew up as a South African in Australia. Um, and my parents always said, the Australians, they, but we. And that made it difficult for me as a kid at school. I used to get teased for my accent. I come back to South Africa as an adult and people say to me, no, you're not South African. You know, we can hear you're not South African. Um, in Germany, people say, are you English or American? Um, and and yet that has become my comfort zone. You know, my, my I, I'm in a sense, the, the opposite of, of the character in the song, because my sense of home involves being someone from somewhere else. Um, but the other thing I love about this song is that it's a seven-minute version of Tristan and Isolde. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I love Tristan and Isolde, but my God, it goes on and on and on. And in this particular seven-minute song, Wagner's kind of already used the best bits. So it's, it's, it's um, Wagner for those with a low sense of patience. <laughs> Well, as you know, there's some great Wagner lovers in South Africa, and we have quite an active Wagner society here. And one of our co-hosts uh, on Classic 1027 is Rodney Trudgeon, who goes to hear Wagner whenever he can. He likes to go to the complete ring cycle. And I guess you've been to several of those, have you? Oh, I have, yes. Some of my best friends are Wagner lovers. Uh, you cannot be a music journalist in Germany w without... Um, without engaging in Wagner. And I was married to a passionate Wagner fan. In my strange operatic life of men who die on me, my, my first boyfriend died of a viral heart muscle infection and my husband died of a brain tumor um, back in 2007. Um, when I met him, he was this incredibly beautiful, tall, gorgeous, dark-eyed man who was went into an ecstatic trance when he heard Wagner. And I lied. I pretended that I liked Wagner. I signed up for all these Wagnerian operas because I just had to say, oh, I've got tickets to Tristan. He was like, oh, 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 can I come? <laughs> oh, because you got the free tickets. I got the free tickets. So I think he married me for the free tickets. Um, but what I discovered was in the in the course of suffering through all these endless Wagner operas in order to, uh, to win over this gorgeous man, um, was that I kind of it kind of grew on me, uh, and he was the one that pointed the finger at me and laughed when I started going to Wagner operas that he couldn't attend, and he used to say, "You're a Wagneriana, you're a Wagneriana." No, 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 it's just my job, and and I I will never say, in fact, that I love Wagner. I don't think that I do love Wagner, but I'm intrigued by it, and I seldom pass off the opportunity to attend Wagner because it's like the biggest challenge. It's also like catastrophe tourism there's so much to to go wrong and so much so often does go wrong it's the hugest challenge and watching what happens when people take that challenge on um is endlessly intriguing maybe i do like but there's certainly moments of wagner that move me deeply um and and it i can sit through it f forever because it's 
it's an all-encompassing experience. But I do not think you should listen to Wagner without being aware of the moral issues. I think they're very real. I think they cannot and should not be dismissed. I do not buy the argument that says music is pure and above morality. I don't think that's the case. I think Wagner... um, did some really bad things ideologically. He was not an innocent anti-Semite. He was a guilty anti-Semite. Um, he wished ill upon the Jews, and he, his writings, his music, and his actions all resulted. Uh, of course, he's not responsible for the Holocaust, but he did play a role. He did suggest the extermination of the Jewish race, and you have to be. And that's one of the things I love about Germany. Um, the the ability to take on this tremendous moral complexity, to live through it, to acknowledge, and still to to tackle this incredible, gorgeous music and give it a life that acknowledges the ambivalence. And maybe that's something I love about South Africa too. This is also an in- incredibly traumatized, difficult, complex society that has the courage to look its history in the eyes on a good day. Well, here's some beautiful music now. Not that there's ever a lack of beautiful music from Schubert, but this is the third movement, the scherzo of the string quintet in C major. The bel cello quartet are joined by Valentin Erben on cello. You've been listening to the scherzo, the third movement of the string quintet in C major by Franz Schubert. The bel cello quartet and Valentin Erben joined them on cello. The choice of Shirley Apthorpe, who's my guest in People of Note. And you were saying off-air that you sometimes play that yourself. Um, I I really stopped playing the violin for a long time after my studies because I thought if I can't practice, I can't maintain the level that I expect of myself. And my job involves listening to people who are light years better than I have a hope in Hades of ever being. Um, but to continue with it, uh, I, I dated a Baroque oboist for a while who didn't die, I'm happy to say. Um, <laughs> and he had an amateur Baroque orchestra and I listened to a concert and I thought, you know what, I could play that. So I started playing again and we had a, a dinner after one of our orchestral concerts and I thought, if we put together all the English speakers in this orchestra, coincidentally we'd have the right line lineup to do the Schubert quintet with two celli, let's do it. And I said, hey guys, sh- shall we we have a party and they all said yes and that that began an institution my, my childhood dream of being a second violinist in an orchestra that was better than me I now live out in my living room in Berlin I, I buy plenty of wine and I cook a big pot of food and my friends who all play better than I do come together and I get to saw my way through the second violin part and and it's so joyous like giving myself permission to play badly has opened a whole universe to me and it's just you know playing this music is is it's a little bit of heaven. And they just sweep you along. They do. <laughs> they carry me well, with Well, that's them. wonderful. And you've, you've been sweeping us along here in South Africa with your, your nine projects. And I guess number 10 is in the pipeline, is it? It surely is. And it's quite soon. We will be doing a new chamber opera in Hillbrow in September, composed by Kathy Milliken, who's another Australian living in Berlin. She ran the education program of the Berlin Philharmonic for seven years. Stage director is Robert Meyer, who did our fabulous Figaro, who did Comfort Ye. Um, and we'll have five singers and three instrumentalists, including Waldo Alexander and Jill Richards in that project. I'm very excited about it. And that's happening next year? That's happening this year. This year? The 13th of September in Hillbrow, be there or be square. It's there we go. It's going to be called Romeo's Passion. There we go. Shirley Apthorpe, my guest in People of Note, is the founder and CEO of Mtrulo, which is 
uh, a non-profit organization bringing music to disadvantaged people. It's been fabulous to have you on the program. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Richard. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks to Pete for helping us put it all together and to you all at home for listening. And until next time, of course, I'll be back during the week with full works. But until next week, when we have another People of Note, we say have a great week ahead. Good night.